You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And now as we continue in our study of church growth and evangelism principles, I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to be able to listen. I also pray, Lord, that you would help me to touch on subjects that, that are, are practical and that will help those who are in attendance. And Lord, most of all, I pray that you would consecrate each of us to be a part of your great movement of destiny called to finish the work on this earth by you using us as tools as you finish that work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a bit of review, key number one is spiritual revival and spiritual renewal. We were spending a, a good portion of time on that yesterday. I talked a bit about Bible study. Churches are renew, or revived when there's a renewed emphasis on Bible study. Uh, I want to just share with you a brief study that is, uh, frankly, a frightening study, and it is an older study, and so I'm sure the numbers are worse today than they were then. Uh, the Institute of Church Ministry did a study, and it found that less than 50% of all Seventh-day Adventists have personal devotions or read the Bible on a daily basis. Uh, and, and when you think about that, that is a frightening statistic. Uh, and so the call, and I spent a great deal of time on this yesterday, the call of God is that because we can use, we can see that statistic and say, oh, I can't believe that. But the more important piece of this is how do I personally internalize that? How do I personally apply that to me? If I'm struggling in this area, how is the Lord or what is the Lord calling me to do to come out of that struggle? Um, you know the Desire of Ages quote, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. Our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened and we will be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. And again, in the context of the things that I said yesterday, and I don't think what I said yesterday is in conflict with this statement, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour. But if you're not starting, if you're starting from scratch and you're having no personal devotion time, like I said, let's start with a smaller segment of dedicated time that is undistracted by the many distractions that are existent in life. And as we spend time, as we spend time, the Lord will open up the doors of opportunity for there to be more time. And, and devotions, instead of being a chore or a duty, actually become a, a, a very fruitful part of our, uh, of our life where we're coming in to communion with God and having that personal relationship or that personal experience with God. Uh, and as we move along in that experience, there are different uh, there are different avenues by which we will have that experience. And what do I mean by that? So for me, and I shared this very briefly, 
uh, I had been really impacted by listening, listening to uh, the Bible. And so for my personal devotions over the course of the last year, I've been listening through the Bible while going through, and many of you are probably familiar uh, with this, uh, Arl Voorhees, uh, a Seventh-day Adventist, wrote a book called Correlated Bible Readings. Uh, and it takes the Bible and the Conflict of the Ages series and correlates them in a format of, uh, of reading them together. And so I listen and I then read, and I've been reading through the Conflict of the Ages. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very powerful experience. And I've done that several different times. And now this time I'm listening. And so, for example, this morning I listened because it correlates it in time. And by the way, when you do that, all of a sudden all these prophets begin, because as many of you are aware, the Bible is not in chronological order. And so when you begin to read the various prophets in the context of what was happening, it opens up a, a new experience in understanding God and his word. And so when you begin to understand that, for example, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel were all contemporary prophets, but writing from different standpoints, Jeremiah still in Judah, in Jerusalem, Daniel in Babylon, writing from there, and then Ezekiel being taken captive in the second wave of captives being taken and writing from Babylon, it begins to... And for me, and I'll just, just share you with, with briefly what happened with me, is that, for example, the book of Ezekiel, I, I mean, I've been an Adventist for, uh, I became an Adventist in 95, so that's 26 years. I will tell you, I've never really like, spent a lot of time in the book of Ezekiel. It's kind of one of those books. You just kind of read it and you're like, hmm, that's kind of interesting, but I'm not sure what it means. So you just don't spend a lot of time there. But as I was listening through Ezekiel, I noticed something. There's a phrase that occurs in the book of Ezekiel over 60 times. And when a phrase occurs 60 times in one book, you probably need to pay attention to what it's saying. And the phrase is this, that they would know that I am God. And it opened up this whole study for me on what does it mean to know God? And all of these things that were happening, and it's fascinating, by the way, because that phrase occurs, that phrase occurs outside, outside of the book of Ezekiel. And one of the most interesting places it occurs is in the book of Exodus. And it talks about the ten plagues. And it says there that the children of Israel would know that I am God. But guess who else God wanted to know that he was God? It says it in the context of Pharaoh. And now all of a sudden the plagues take on a whole different understanding. The plagues were not merely a punishment upon the Egyptians. The ten plagues in Exodus functioned as an avenue in which Pharaoh could come to an understanding that God is God, and there are no other gods. Why? Because God is interested in the salvation of even pagan 
heathens. And how do we know that? Because the book of Daniel, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I do believe there is great and vital importance to understanding that the head of gold is Babylon, the chest and arms of silver are Medo-Persia, the midsection of brass or bronze is Greece, the legs of iron are Rome, and the feet of iron mixed with clay are the division of the Roman Empire. But often we miss the practical application of why that dream was given. That dream was given because God had a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God calls him his chosen servant. Now you read about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. But God called him his chosen servant because God is interested in saving to the uttermost. And Daniel chapter 1, 2, and 3 are all avenues by which God was trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel 4 is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar finally saying, you know what? I'm not king of kings and lord of lords. He is. And so when we're in our personal devotional experience, we're able to apply these things, okay? So prayer and Bible study is that which searches our souls, penetrates our thoughts, and the Spirit through these things has an avenue for cleansing our heart and energizing our spiritual life. And so that then leads to a reality, and that is that we need an outlet. Because if all we do if all we do is consume, and let's put it in the arena of food, if all we do is eat and sit, what will happen? We will grow, not in the way we want. Are you following what I'm saying? I mean, and I've shared a little bit. I, over the course of the last year, I've lost a significant amount of weight, and weight loss is a rather simple equation. That which goes out must be greater than that which goes in. And notice I said simple, not necessarily easy, okay? But how do we apply that to the spiritual life? Because if all we're doing is consuming, and sometimes we say these phrases, right? I've come to church this morning to be fed. That's interesting. If all we do is feed and never have an outlet to what we're being fed. So grow, churches grow when there is renewed interest in witnessing. We've already walked through Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. God is interested in changing who we are, that witnessing is not something that we say, hey, on Sabbath afternoon, we're going to go witnessing. But rather, witnessing is a part of who we are and what we do. It is manifest in our neighborhood. It is manifest to our next door neighbor. It is manifest wherever we go. You see, because without outreach, what happens to us as individuals? There is an arthritis of our soul. Because, and again, I, I, we got to be careful with an analogy, but if all we do is consume and consume and consume in the health life and, and, we, and we begin to develop fat cells everywhere, that creates a problem inside of our bodies. It creates a problem of inflammation. And inflammation then causes clogging of the arteries. And what happens when our arteries are clogged? We have an, a heart attack. Or we have a stroke and it impairs us. 
And so why is this emphasis on spiritual revival and renewal so important? Because, and we can say, because the church. We have to remember when we say the church, who are we talking about? We're talking about me. (laughs) Because I have clogged arteries and the Lord needs to do a spiritual bypass on me. And how does he do that? Well, and he doesn't need to do a spiritual by, a bypass. He needs to do a lifestyle change on us to transform that in inflammation in those clogged arteries. And so how do we do that? Through spiritual renewal, through Bible study and prayer, God changes us and he actually, and this is sometimes what we misunderstand. Too often we understand Adventism to be behavior modification therapy. And that's not what Romans 12 says. What does Romans 12 say? There is a renewal of the mind and also what? Transformation is the word that is used. And that Greek word there for transformation is the Greek word metamorpho, from where we get our English word what? Metamorphosis. And what is the greatest example of metamorphosis? Uh, Butterfly, right? Now, listen, I'm not a biologist. I've just done some reading. So if you're a biologist, you can come and correct me on this. But as I have read and studied about what happens in the development of a butterfly, it is a fascinating thing. A butterfly is not merely a caterpillar with wings on it. No, when that caterpillar forms the cocoon around itself, it releases an enzyme. And that enzyme dissolves the caterpillar completely and then develops inside of that cocoon a butterfly. Why am I placing the emphasis on that? Because the butterfly is a completely new creature. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we walk in the newness of life. Why the emphasis on spiritual renewal and revival when we talk about church growth? Because that is key. And I don't mean to be judgmental when I say what I'm about to say, but too often our churches are filled with caterpillars that have wings taped upon them. And what we need are butterflies, people that have been transformed. And where does that transformation start? With me. And as that transformation happens, no longer is there a retardation of real, genuine spiritual growth. But there is significant growth and that growth spreads and if it's not just merely a spiritual spreading there is a cultural happening that happens it's kind of like when somebody gets a new iphone what happens everybody wants one and so you have this renewed spiritual experience and people are saying what's going on with you and we can share what's happening in our life and as we have that spiritual renewal and that spiritual growth it leads us to a place in which our churches are being renewed because the individuals who comprise the church are being renewed. And I want to be very, very clear about something because I don't want you to take this away. Because what we can do sometimes is we'll take the information that I've been sharing over the course of the last couple of days and we can say, okay, we just need to get ourselves right. And once we get ourselves right, we can go do outreach. We're going to be on the earth a long, long time if that's how we approach this. I would remind you, Peter preached one of the most powerful sermons ever preached in Christianity in Acts chapter 2, at the end of which 3,000 people were baptized. Was Peter perfect when he preached that sermon? No, he, he had a pretty significant problem, did he not? 
that God didn't resolve until later in Acts chapter 10. What was his problem? Prejudice and racism. He was unwilling to be in the company of Gentiles. But God still used him, right? So we can, we can, where we do not need to go is to become a self-deprecating group of people that think that we need to wander in the wilderness for 40 years for God to change us and then, and then, and only then can we go and talk to our neighbor and bring them a loaf of bread and a pot of soup. Then and only then can we share with somebody about Jesus. Then and only then can we have Bible study with someone. These things work together at the same time. Does that make sense? As we're being renewed, God will be changing us, but we will not be a finished product. By the way, when are we a finished product? See, the interesting thing is here, we often will say, at the second coming of Jesus, we'll be a finished product. Ellen White makes a very interesting comment, by the way. What is the only thing we'll take to heaven with us? Our character. But then she says something fascinating, that we will continue to develop in character throughout eternity. And please be very clear on what I'm not saying. I am not saying that God has taken a whole group of sinners to heaven with him. God is changing us. He's preparing us. But we have to remember, we have to remember, there is only one access point to heaven. And that access point is Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended, and his transformation in our lives. But we will be developing our characters into eternity. Isn't that amazing? So the first key is spiritual renewal. And, 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 and in the little description here, that's individual transformation. But God wants to do something then beyond the individual transformation. And that is key number two. And that is corporate transformation. Now, when I talk about key number two being inspiring worship, let me be clear on what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is, is that we need to change our music and our worship style. Let's be very, very clear on that. What do I mean by inspiring worship? You see, inspiring worship leads our spirits to soar, our souls to rejoice, our spiritual experience to grow. In a generation starving for spirituality, there is hunger for biblical truth. And the fact is borne out in a recent survey taken by Tom Rainer among the unchurched. He wrote this book, it's called Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, where what made his study unique, because there are many studies on studying secular people and spirituality. What made his study unique was, is he took a group of people that were secular, unchurched people, and then they started going to church. Because you can ask a secular person, hey, what would bring you to church? 80% of them are not going, going to, they're not going to come to church anyways. So why are we asking that question? But rather what he studied is people who actually made that transition. And he asked them, what is it that brought about that transition? For 91% of them, it was the pastor and his or her preaching. One of his surprising insights, by the way, is 88% of them it was the doctrines of the church that brought them to the church because people are looking for something to stand for in the 21st century. It is not now time for us to give up the distinctives that God has given us. The reason God has made a people that are distinctive is because he understood there would come a time in which people are looking for something different. And if all we do is offer the same, we're in trouble. This has, by the way, been one of the greatest examples uh, even in the evangelical world, there has come an understanding. We have, this, uh, we have a challenge within the church, and that is many of our young people are leaving the church. And so we've been asking this question, how do we keep our young people? The evangelical world was asking the same question. In the 1980s and 1990s, their answer to that was to develop a program that was centered around entertainment. 
What's the problem with that? Other than the fact that it's not biblical. Here's the problem with that. Hollywood has billions and billions of dollars. We don't in the church. Hollywood will out-entertain us 10 times out of 10. And so you can go read the evangelical literature and the evangelical literature on youth ministry will testify by their own testimony that the entertainment model of ministry failed. Unfortunately, some of us haven't gotten the memo on that. And this is a whole nother seminar on itself. I think we're asking the wrong question. How do we keep our children? That's actually not the biblical model. How do we send our children as missionaries? If we sent our young people because we have equipped them, I think we would be looking at something entirely different. But that's another seminar altogether. Inspiring worship. What do I mean by inspiring worship? First of all, when we're preaching, we need to preach uniquely Adventist sermons. Biblical sermons. I do a whole seminar on preaching. I don't have time to go through all of that. Our sermons, if I have elders here and pastors here, our sermons should not have originated because we found a really, really good story and now we're going to go find a biblical text to support the story that I found. If we begin our sermons with the illustration, we're in trouble. Our sermon should originate where? I don't know that sounds silly for me to say that, but that is where they should originate. Our sermon should originate in the Bible. And let me be very, very clear. Our sermon should not even originate from the writings of Ellen White. Ellen White is clear that she is the little light, or the lesser light rather, pointing to the greater light. Our sermons should originate from the Bible. And by the way, Barry Black calls this preaching from the overflow. What does he mean by that? You see, when we have our devotional experience every morning, I can just tell you, all of my sermons come out of my devotional experience. Now, I don't prepare sermons as a part of my devotional experience. I'm reading, and I read this phrase that appears 64 times in the book of Ezekiel, that they may know that I am God. And I say, whoa, there's something here. Let me put a little note in my little devotional book a little composition book. And I put a little note there and then I go back and I start digging in and that's where my sermons come from. Our sermons come from the overflow. Barry Black, many of you know, he's the chaplain of the Senate and he's an Adventist. And Barry Black, because he has the joy of driving in Washington, D.C. traffic every day, he listens to the Bible and he goes through the Bible four to five times every single year. He says, because I get in my car and I turn on the news. All I have to do is listen for 10 minutes because all they do is they recycle the news over and over again every 10 minutes. So I listen for 10 minutes and then I put on the Bible. And when you're listening to the Bible, okay, and I, and I looked at this this morning, to listen to the entire Bible takes approximately 100 hours. And when you, see, you hear that, you're like, wow, that's a lot. But think about that. Think about that. That means if you listen to the Bible an hour every day, you could go through the entire Bible in three months. By the way, this is why HMS Richard Sr., HMS Richard Sr., every year, he would, through, he would read through the entire Bible in one month because he wanted to reacquaint himself with the entire story. Now, by the way, when you're doing that, you're not doing deep study, you're reading. But how do you do that? The Bible is approximately 1,200 chapters. In 30 days, how do you read through the Bible in 30 days? You read 40 chapters a day, which is going to take you approximately 
two, three hours every day. Let me be very clear in the context of the things that I said yesterday. I'm not telling you that's what I think you should do. I'm telling you when we're talking about inspiring worship, when we're talking about biblical sermons, are our sermons being unearthed, so to speak, from the Bible? So what does inspiring worship look like? Have you ever had the experience where somebody has preached a sermon? I've had this experience where I've preached a sermon and the person preceding you was the special music and the special music just so happened to match my sermon. And then what do we do afterwards? We go and we talk to the person who did the special music and we're like, oh, praise the Lord. We didn't even talk to each other and this happened. And this is why I say many Adventists are far more evolutionary than we would admit because we think that things just merely happen by accident. What would happen in our worship services if we actually thought through what we wanted for someone to take home with them that day from the worship service? My wife and my mother-in-law, I think my mother-in-law is watching in Lincoln, Nebraska right now. She's been watching me live every day. So my mother-in-law and my wife have this kind of funny saying that they say. They'll, they'll call each other and they'll be like, hey, you know, how was church today? Oh, it was nice. What, what was the sermon about? And they will have this very funny phrase. You know, it was about God and the Bible and stuff. And while that's a funny phrase... I think we might be hard-pressed to admit that there are many people that have that general understanding of what church was without a specific. I don't do this, but when people come and greet me at the door after I've preached, and they're like, Pastor, it's an amazing sermon. Part of me wants to ask, not in an antagonistic way, what's your take-home? What's your take-home? The great Haddon Robinson, a teacher of many preachers, says this about sermons. Sermons ought to be a bullet not buckshot. Using another analogy, a sermon ought to be a trail through the woods, not a meandering through the forest. Are you following what I'm saying? What would happen if our church service as a whole was a trail rather than meandering all over the place? That the songs we sang in song service had the same or similar message to that which the sermon would bring. What would happen if children's story, by the way, that's where most church services go off the rails. What would happen if our children's story had the same message that was coming from the sermon? What would happen if the special music had the same message that was coming from the sermon? That way, as people are listening, as they're participating in worship, there is a dominant theme that is inspiring and encouraging them to follow God, be close to Him, and seek after Him on a daily basis. Does that make sense to everyone? See, that would be a very inspiring time. That would be an extraordinarily inspiring time because, because we are being inspired to follow God. Because here's the reality. Most of us face difficulty in our life and we've been beat up for six days. And when we come to church, we, we, we need that inspiration of following God more closely. And that doesn't mean we can't challenge people on Sabbath morning. But when we challenge people, we need to be careful to not beat them up. We challenge in an inspiring way. I can challenge someone and say, I wonder aloud if many of us are simply caterpillars with wings taped on. But following that, there better be instruction on how then can we experience the, the metamorphosis power of God in our life. Does that make sense to everybody? And so, key number two in effect, and I know these seem, people are like, but pastor, when are we going to talk about outreach? 
Key number one and key number two are all about the individual transformation and the corporate transformation because here is the greatest challenge. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to be disturbing to some of us, but we face a significant challenge today. And that significant challenge today is, do we really have a care for lost souls? Do, does it matter to me that my neighbor may be lost? Does it matter to me that the person who lives across the yard of the church may not know Jesus? Do we care? The book of Psalms talks about those who, those who are weeping as they're sowing will rejoice in the harvest. Are we weeping over our communities? Does it stir our soul? Sometimes we get so caught up in pastors, I know this especially, but for all of us, sometimes we get so caught up in church life that we lose sight of the calling that God has placed upon all of us. And for me, it was a very simple thing. I became an Adventist when I was 21 years old. I grew up Roman Catholic, left the Roman Catholic Church when I was 16 years old, and I went on a search. I went to Willow Creek Community Church, a large non-denominational church in the Chicago area. I had friends that were apostolic, charismatics. I went to their Bible study where they started speaking in tongues. That frightened me just slightly. I had a friend that was a Mormon. I had a friend that was a Jehovah Witness. I said, this isn't where God is. At the age of 20 years old, I even went to a New Age conference trying to figure out if that's where God was. When I finally encountered the Adventist church, my first encounter with the Adventist church, some of you have asked, Adventism was brought to me by the lady that I now call my wife. For the young people that are here, let me be very, very clear. Our experience is a descriptive experience, not a prescriptive experience. What do I mean by that? There is no such thing as evangelistic dating. There just isn't. My wife was having a struggle in her spiritual journey, and we met at a Speedway gas station where I worked at the corner of Ironwood and Ireland in South Bend, Indiana. My first experience with the Adventist church was at Pioneer Memorial Church. So when I tell you I feel like I'm home, Michigan is a very important place in my life because I encountered the Adventist message at Pioneer Memorial Church. You remember when satellites were a big thing and we started putting satellites on all of our churches? My first experience with the Adventist church was Mark Finley preaching from Chattanooga, Tennessee, being beamed down by satellite into churches around the world. And that was my encounter with the Adventist church. When I became an Adventist, when I was baptized in September of 1995, shortly thereafter, I began to sense that maybe God was calling me into a special work. I began sensing the call to ministry. And what burned in my heart, what burned in my heart was, was the reality that I was 21 years old before I heard the Adventist message. And I began asking a lot of questions. I went to a high school of 1,200 kids. According to the statistics, there should have been four or five Adventists in my school. How come I never know this? How come no one ever told me? I lived in a neighborhood in Mount Prospect, Illinois. Hundreds upon hundreds of homes. Undoubtedly, there were Adventists that lived in my neighborhood. How come nobody ever knocked on my door? 
By the way, I'm not beating anybody up. I'm, asking, I'm telling you the questions I was asking myself. And so now what burns in my heart and what burned in my heart as I felt the calling to ministry was, how do I make sure no 21-year-old has to go through what I went through when I was 21? Folks, I almost killed myself over the issues of spirituality because it was so confusing. Each of us has something that burns in our heart. Too often we lose sight of it in the midst of business meetings and board meetings and all other kinds of stuff. Too often we lose sight of what the calling God has placed upon us in the midst of personal conflict within the church context. Why is spiritual revival and spiritual renewal and inspiring worship so important? Because we need to rediscover the calling that God has placed in upon our life. And that goes, by the way, for pastors and lay people. When I was flying home from Minneapolis, I was up in Dakota camp meeting and I, 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 I came home via Minneapolis and I got on the plane there in Minneapolis and I met a man and I think I maybe shared a little bit, but this man was sitting next to me and we, were, we began talking and I said, oh, I, is DC home for you? He says, no, I'm just going there to do some work. I said, oh, really? What do you do for work? And this is what he said to me. He says, he says I, I have a business where I remove dents from cars that have damage from hail. And then he said this, but that's not my real calling in life. I said, well, really? What's your calling in life? My wife and I, we pastor a church in Minneapolis. Really? And we began talking. You see, friends, all of us have a vocation by which we put food on the table and we pay our rent or our mortgage. What's your calling in life? What's your calling in life? What has God called you to do? That's what inspiring worship is about. For helping every disciple of Christ that is sitting in the congregation to discover God's calling for them in their life, tomorrow, the next day, and the following week. What is God's calling? It is to inspire us to follow God that we're so in communion with God that we sense God leading us. And so as I met this man on the airplane ride from Minnesota or from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C., the Lord laid it on my heart. He says, listen, you need to get in touch with this guy. And listen, I, I wrestle just like everybody else. I mean, he's flying, you know, he's trying to mind his own business. The Lord laying it on my heart. And we get off the plane and I, I didn't get a chance to ask him how to contact him. I was like, okay, Lord. I'm hearing you. If, you. if you put me next to him, I'll ask him. I mean, there are thousands of people flying in the airport, right? And there he and I ended up on the little tram. And more importantly, we ended up on the escalator right behind him. I said, okay, Lord. And I, and I felt a, a bit awkward just saying, hey, what's your phone number? What's your email? You know, for the call porters that are out there, I know you would do that, but it just felt a little awkward for me. So this is all I asked him. I say, hey, Mark, hey, what's the name of your church that you pastor? This church. And I knew where it was. And so when I get home, Mark's going to get some books from me. You see, when we're in tune with the Spirit, God will lead us. Christ's Object Lessons, page 333, says this. And I want you to listen very carefully. Because I quote this often, and I quote it quickly, and we don't let it impact us. As the will of man, Christ, Christ Object Lessons, page 333. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. I want you to ponder that for a moment. What is, what is omnipotent? 
all-powerful. I'm going to ask you a question, which is a semi-trick question. Is there anything that God cannot do? Often what our answer is, is no, God can do everything. That's not true. God never forces the will. And whether he cannot or he chooses not is irrelevant. He chooses not, at very least, he chooses not to force the will. So I want you to think about that quotation now. In order to unleash the all-powerful will of God in our life hinges on our willingness to cooperate with his will. That's why spiritual renewal and inspiring worship is so important when we talk about church growth and evangelism. Because too often we have been caught up in the issue of technique. I'll be honest with you, I don't know what the greatest needs of Houghton Hancock in the Upper Peninsula, I don't know what the greatest needs are there. I don't know what the greatest needs of Flint. I don't know the greatest needs of Berrien Springs, of, of Muskegon, of, uh, of Grand Rapids. I don't know what the greatest needs of, and I could name the cities all around Michigan. But when we are in tune with the Spirit and as our will surrenders or cooperates with the will of God, He will speak to us and He will help us to know what we ought to do. I can give you all kinds of ideas. That's why these two keys are pivotal and foundational to church growth and evangelism. Is everybody with me? All right. Key number three. Key number three. Key number three is effective training. So now we've come to the place. We're cooperating with the will of God. God's all-powerful will is being unleashed. We're sensing God's calling. Let me throw something out there. Let's say that we discover that in our community, depression and anxiety is a significant issue that the community faces. And now we say, okay, Lord, I'm not a doctor, so how do I reach these people? And we learn about the depression, uh, the Neil Nedley's Depression Recovery Program. So we need to be trained on how to effectively reach the community with the depression recovery program. I'm throwing out one example. There are a multitude of things. By the way, when we talk about effective training, that goes beyond just how to reach the community. But even within the context of the church and our normal nominations for positions, and I'm saying this a bit tongue-in-cheek, and I mean no offense by it, but how do we typically operate a nominating committee? Help me with your name, dear brother. Sal? So we meet as a group and we nominate Sal to be the personal ministries leader. Now, let me just ask, Sal, are you the personal ministries leader of your church? Okay, very good. For whatever reason, when I do this example, I always happen to name the position that a person holds and then it can be made much more personal than it needs to be made. We nominate Sal to be the personal ministries leader. Sal's a good name. And I say to Sal, Sal, would you be willing to be the personal ministries leader? And Sal says, yes. And then how do we handle that? Typically, we give Sal a little pat on the back and we say, have at it, Sal. And then a year from now, we reconvene nominating committee. And because Sal didn't really know what he ought to do, he ended up doing what the most human thing is to do, and that is what? He did nothing. And so we talk about this in nominating committee. Well, you know, Sal didn't do anything. And what, what is your name, dear sister, right here? What is your name? Sue? So we say, you know what? Sue would make a wonderful personal ministries leader. And so now we nominate Sue and we don't renominate Sal. In the process, by the way, we hurt Sal's feelings 
because Sal doesn't know why he wasn't renominated. But now we nominate Sue, and guess what we do with Sue? Same thing. Eventually, people get tired of that. What would happen if we changed how we did what we did? Sal, you've been nominated to be the personal ministries leader. Sal, I'd like you to take a few days to pray about being the personal ministries leader. Sal, I'm going to give you a bit of material. Here's a little sheet from the church manual that talks about personal ministries. Here's some idea sheets on things that can be done in personal ministries. And Sal, you know the overall mission of our church. The overall mission of our church is, and whatever that may be, the overall mission of our church is to touch every soul in Flint with the gospel message. That's too general for a mission statement, but let's just say that's what it was. I'd like you to pray about this. I'd like you to think about this. In, and in a week, I'd like to meet with you. You let me know whether this is something that you think God's calling you to do in your life, and then we can talk about what comes next. Sal meets with me a week later, and Sal says, you know what, Pastor, I really think that God's calling me to be the personal ministries leader. Sal, as you've been reading through this material, what are some things that are really touching your heart that you think are important in us accomplishing our mission as the church? I this, 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 this. Wonderful. Sal, help me with your name, brother. William. Sal, this is William. And William, William is our elder who oversees the outreach ministries of the church. And William is going to meet with you initially on a weekly basis to help you formulate your plan and to execute your plan. After that, he'll meet with you once a month. If you have any needs, you have anything that is pressing, you need resources, you talk to William. And I meet with William and the rest of the elders on a regular basis. And we'll make sure you have everything you need to accomplish what you believe God is calling you to do in this church. What would happen if we handled it that way? What would happen if we handled it that way that Sal is meeting with William on a regular basis and if Sal's not doing anything, William is able to ask him a very simple question in a very kind and loving way. Hey, Sal, you talked about doing all these things. Hey, what's happening? Is there anything I can do to help you in accomplishing what you were trying to do? Does that make sense to everyone? You see, we invest in people, and now we come back to this illustration of the depression recovery program, which is now outside of the scope of our regularly. By the way, that, let me, I've got my mind going all over the place right now. That's not just with personal ministries. What happens if we do that with deacons and elders, deaconesses? You know, most people don't realize that one of the main functions of deacons is not to open the church on Sabbath morning. One of the main functions of deacons is to visit people in their homes. What would happen if we started understanding the context of biblical things and then providing training? This is just my belief, and maybe it's a far-fetched belief. Maybe it's too optimistic of a belief. But I believe the reason we are challenged in finding volunteers is because often we do not provide the framework in which volunteers can thrive. And by the way, for my pastors that are here in this room, that's our responsibility. And Ellen White is clear, by the way. Ellen White is very, very clear. I'll have to pull the quote because this is a loose paraphrase of the quote. The work on this earth will never be finished until the laity, the pastors, and conference workers come together in unity. We need to come together and understand that as a layperson, you are as vital, if not more vital, to the success of this gospel going to the ends of the earth than I am as a pastor. And I've said this often. Actually, we need less of people like me. 
we need less pastors. And I know that's a dangerous thing to say. Let me rephrase what I just said. We need less pastors who are doing all the work. We need more of us who are handing the ball off. No Super Bowl team has won with just a quarterback. It requires in a team. And it requires the quarterback to give the ball away. Make sense? And delivering it into the hands of the people who can take it to the end zone. So now let's talk about our depression recovery ministry because we're going to start depression recovery. Sue, who is that that's sitting next to you? Lorraine. Lorraine, let's just say that you had a passion for reaching people with depression. You're a member of our church. So what we do is we come together and we really believe, Lorraine, that you would be an excellent person to lead out the depression recovery ministry in our church. So what do we do when we talk about effective training? Effective training is about investing in people. And so we vote as a church board what we're going to do. And I come to you, Lorraine, and I say, Lorraine, here's what we're going to do. We would like for you to be trained to do the depression recovery program. Now, the training costs this amount of money. And we are going to pay for your tuition for that. By the way, the depression recovery training is occurring in at Weimar in California. So you need to get out there. So we're going to pay your airplane ticket to get out there. Here's what we're asking, Lorraine. For our commitment to you to be rightly trained, I'm asking for you to commit to holding two depression recovery programs for the next two years. Is that something you would be willing to do? The number one question I'm always asked when I go through that scenario is, Pastor, what happens if Lorraine moves away? Then we praise God from whom all blessings flow and we send Lorraine off as a missionary that has been trained in our church to go to all the world. Now we're not losing members. We are a missionary training center sending people to all the world. Are you with me? So effective training. There's a lot I could say about effective training, but churches grow when each member is trained and equipped for services, uh, for service. One of the prime functions of the local church is to equip its members to use their God-given gifts in service. Ephesians 4. And he himself, who's the he there himself? Is God. God gave some to be apostles, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of, of Christ. That phrase there, some pastors and teachers, it, 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 in the original, it gives off the idea, some pastoral teachers. See, the role of the pastor, yes. So let me be very clear. Pastors, we need to get down in the trenches. Because when we look about the ministry of Jesus, before Jesus sent out the 12 and sent out the 70, he was down in the trenches, right? The Bible says that Jesus went about all the cities and villages. And what did he do in those cities and villages? Preaching, teaching, and healing. And then when he sent out the 12, what did he send them out to do? To preach and teach and heal. And then when he sent out the 70, what did he send them out to do? To preach and teach and heal. Because the model of Jesus in leadership, in getting people involved is, Jesus modeled ministry. He taught by modeling it. Then, using the analogy of earlier, he handed off the ball. Hey, go out 12. By the way, are the 12 perfect? They were far from perfect. But he handed the ball off. And if we stop there, we're not completing the ministry. Because after Jesus modeled the ministry, after he sent them off into ministry, then he took time to reflect with them upon what they had done. 
The demon's not coming out of this one. So what does Jesus say? Some, they'll only come out by prayer and fasting because he's reflecting with them now. By the way, in the sending out of the 12, the sending out of the 70, Jesus pulls aside with them. In our modern 21st century culture, what do we call this? We call this accountability. A time for us to reflect. So Lorraine, you had your first depression recovery program. There were 10 people here. And of those 10 people, eight of them completed the program. How do you feel about the program, Lorraine? How did things go? Are there things that you could have done better? What were the things that were the best that really excited you? And listen, I am guilty of what I'm about to say. Here's the challenge. What we will say is we're too busy to do what I just outlined. And I'll go back to the quote that I ended with yesterday. We have a lot of activity, but not a lot of results. Several books have been written. One of them, the title of the book is Addicted to Busy. Let me be clear when I talk about church growth and evangelism. This is not about having activity for activity's sake. I would rather have our church be very effective at one or two ministries than to do 15 ministries and be a jack of all trades, but a master of none. The role of the pastor the role of the pastor is for the work of for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. This goes back to our two of our keys. What is the equipping of the saints? What does that mean? Training. Training and equipping and we use this word in the 21st century, empowering. And that's a difficult thing. And I face this as well. When I want something done, there is no better person to do it than me. Why? Because it'll get done the way I want it done. And the challenge with that is, how many of me are there? One. Jesus understood this principle, right? Did he understand this principle? Because he told his disciples what? It's to your advantage that I go. What? How's that possible? Because Jesus was confined by something. What was he confined by? He was confined by the reality that, at least on this earth, he was no longer omnipresent, meaning that he could not be everywhere at one time. And so on record, we only know that Jesus was able to minister to a maximum number of people of when he fed the 5,000. Counting women and children, it was likely somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people. So, <clears throat> so Jesus, while on this earth, could only effectively reach, and I know I say only, 12,000 people is a lot of people, but how many people live on the earth now? Seven billion people live on the earth now. So Jesus understood that it was to their advantage that he would go and send who? The Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at the same exact time. And a lot of times, you know, we try to explain that. Just because we don't understand how that works doesn't mean we, take it, we don't take advantage of it. You understand what I mean? I'm not an electrician. But here's what I know. When I flip the switch, the light comes on. Just because I don't understand how the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at once doesn't mean that I can't experience the power of the Holy Spirit's omnipresence in my life. When we look at the church model, and my dear friends... I need to be very careful in what I'm about to say, but I, I hope you understand the spirit of what I say in the last minute that I have. If we want to experience the exponential growth that was experienced in the book of Acts, which in Acts chapter 2, it says the Lord added to their number. 
And then as they go on, it says he added daily. And then it says he added greatly to their number. And then it says he multiplied the disciples. Finally, in Acts chapter 6, it says that he multiplied the churches. If we want to experience that kind of explosive growth, it is going to require us to change a few things. First, to change our mind and understand what is the mission of the church. Second, to change our mind and understand what is the role of the pastor. Third, understanding that each of us, every one of us here, every one of us watching online, everyone that will watch this on the archive sometime in the future, that each of us is a pivotal part of God's plan in finishing the work on this earth. Because a body without a foot is lame. A body without a hand has difficulty grasping things. A body without an ear cannot hear. A body without an eye cannot see. A body without a tongue cannot taste. Every one of us, every one of us, and whenever I say this, inevitably somebody's going to come to me and say, but pastor, you don't understand. And I'm going, to, I'm going to pick on one of the AV guys. I met Danny yesterday up in the AV booth. And this is what he said to me. I'm just an elder. I wheeled around. I looked at him and I said, don't ever say you're just an elder. You are an elder in God's remnant church called for such a time as this. Don't say to me, I'm just a deaconess. I'm just women's ministries. I'm just the janitor of the church. There's no just anything. You are a key part of what God is doing. And without you, it's going to be much more difficult to accomplish what God wants to do. That's the key to effective equipping and training. Our willingness, using the football analogy, our willingness to receive the ball and run. And pastors, our willingness to give them the ball so they can run. And when we have that kind of a cohesive unit operating, nothing will stand against what God can do. Nothing. We will be God's championship team. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, all of us have been called into service. All of us are a part of the body. And as we spend the remainder of our day today going about different seminars and eating our lunch and our supper and spending time in the campground and whatever else we may be doing, I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of every individual that is here, every individual that is home, every individual that will watch this sometime in the future. I pray that you would impress upon our hearts what you are calling us to do in your last day, church. And Lord, when we're discouraged and we don't feel worthy and we don't feel qualified, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would demonstrate to us how important we are, and that you would open up the opportunities for us to use our gifts, talents, and abilities for the proclamation of this gospel. Lord, may our hearts burn. May our hearts burn with a passion to reach lost souls. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.